What part of the human body changes most after a year in space? And how did Marilyn Monroe make a big impact on the career of Ella Fitzgerald? Hmm. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this half hour of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha. Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia scientists are starting to get some perspective on how long space travel affects the human body. So what part of the body seems to change the most after a year in space? Well, is it the, uh, are the skin? Skin, that's a good one. But that's not it. Skin changes, heads change, eyeballs change. But the part that seems to change the most, most is, is, in the words of the New York Times, note to future space travelers, prepare for a shrinking heart. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because in space, your heart gets smaller. That's because without the pull of gravity, the heart does not have to pump as hard. Ah. And like any other muscle, it loses some of its fitness. And this just came out in a study of Scott Kelly, who is the U.S. astronaut who spent over a year in space. Yeah, yeah. In a study recently published in the journal Circulation, scientists reported the largest chamber in the heart of Scott Kelly shrank in mass by more than one quarter by the time he returned to Earth. So the right- 25%? The right chamber of his heart was more than 25% smaller. Holy wow. This is despite the fact that Scott Kelly exercised six days a week on the space station. He jogged on a treadmill for 30 to 40 minutes daily or worked out on a stationary bicycle. And he also used a resistance machine that mimicked the lifting of weights. And yet, over his 340 days in space, his heart mass shrank to 4.9 ounces from 6.7 ounces, that's a decline of 27%. Can you retrieve that, I wonder? I mean, can it come back? Yeah, apparently it has come back. Okay. But uh, this poses, uh, you know, concerns for these long journeys to Mars that they have planned, you know. So NASA's trying to design better exercise programs for astronauts. Well, let's put that on the top of the list for another reason for not going, Bob. (laughs) I can find more than one reason for going. (laughs) But remember, as a kid, we all thought, when I grow up, we're going to be probably taking trips to the moon, probably go on vacation there and all that stuff. Yeah. Now it's just Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. Well. Who knew? What? (laughs) Okay, Bob. We thought we have the Jetsons lifestyle, (laughs) flying cars, all those things. None of that happened. Well, we do have self-driving cars. We do have the flat screen TVs. Yeah. We do have video phone calls, other things that were in the Jetsons. Very Jetsony. Yeah. So, Bob, how did Marilyn Monroe make a big impact on the career of all people, Ella Fitzgerald. I never would have thought of this. This is quite interesting. Well. Unless it had to do with, uh, let's see. So Ella Fitzgerald preceded Marilyn Monroe by a lot of years. You know, she was in jazz and for at least 20 years or more before Marilyn Monroe was even on the scene. So I would imagine, did it have to do with style? The, the, the kinds of clothes she wore or something like that? No. Marilyn Monroe loved her music. She tried to do a little singing career. Yes. Uh, anyway, one of her heroes was Ella. Well, back in the mid-50s, when Marilyn was at the top of her fame, she heard that Ella couldn't play a posh Hollywood club because she was black. And according to Miss Fitzgerald herself, 
Marilyn called the club owner and said that she wanted Ella booked immediately. And if he did that, Marilyn said she would take a front table every night of her performance. Oh, no kidding. And because of her superstar status, the press went wild. And of course, uh, they showed up every time Marilyn did. And Ella said, I owe Marilyn Monroe a real debt. After that, I never had to play a small jazz club again. No kidding. Who knew? Yeah. And Marilyn Monroe died in 62, so long before the civil rights movement really caught on fire. And Ella said she was an unusual woman, a little ahead of her time, and she didn't know it. How interesting. That's great. That's a great story. Thank you, Bob. All right. (laughs) Speaking of movies, I have a question here. Okay. How did NASA technology help Hollywood film a movie set in the 18th century? Say it again. How did NASA technology help Hollywood film a movie set in the 18th century? Well, time travel, they had to go uh, to have the green screen uh, so they could have uh, realistic backdrops or no? NASA helped with the green screen? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. No. (laughs) This was Stanley Kubrick. He wanted to shoot scenes in great English homes by candlelight only when he was doing Barry oh. Lyndon. Remember oh, that? Yes, I do. That was the uh, William Makepeace Thackeray novel that he put to film. And uh, he and his associates modified a camera with a lens they borrowed from NASA. NASA had uh, commissioned Carl Zeiss, the famous lens company. Many of us have Zeiss lenses on our oh, cameras. Oh, and wait. My dad had it on his, uh, yeah. On okay. his camera, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, Carl Zeiss built 10 planar 50 millimeter still lenses in the 60s to take photos on the dark side of the moon. And the lens had an f-stop of 0.7. That helped Stanley Kubrick film night scenes using candlelights only, which gave an authentic feel to the film, which was set in the 1700s. And by the way, he was no stranger to cameras. Before becoming a director and a filmmaker, Stanley Kubrick was a Look magazine photographer. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Anyway, so that's how NASA helped Hollywood film a movie set in the 1700s by candlelight. Very enlightening, Bob. Enlightening. I love the pun there. That's good. You caught it, too. That's unusual. (laughs) All right. Here we go again Uh, with the unusual. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Any compliment for me, it's unusual. Why is that, Marcia? You're you're a special guy. Don't say special. That has other connotations (laughs) I don't like. All right. I got a ramper question for you, Bob. Hmm. This is from Benjamin Christopher in Los Angeles. Okay. This is your kind of question. Why doesn't Disney World have mosquitoes? Why doesn't Disney World have mosquitoes? You know, I read this in an article a long time ago. What is it? I think they went to great lengths in all of their water system and their ponds to eliminate the possibility of, you know, larvae forming. But I, I can't tell you the answer. Yes, it's very complex what they do. And I'll, I'll read you his answer. Even though Disney World is located in swampy Orlando, Florida, a prime place for mosquitoes to thrive, the theme park takes great pains to ensure that these pesky bloodsuckers don't bother their guests. Disney has instituted what it calls the Mosquito Surveillance Program. (laughs) This includes carbon dioxide traps throughout the park that catch bugs. The Disney team then freezes the caught bugs and studies the population to determine the best way to get rid of them. Holy cow, they're like the S.C. Johnson Company where they got the big lab for the mosquitoes for raid and everything. They also have, quote, sentinel chickens. (laughs) 
What? Quote, yeah, throughout the park, like canaries in a coal mine, so to speak. They regularly have their blood tested for mosquito-borne illness. If a chicken shows any such illness, Disney can pinpoint where in the park it happened. Wow. Different places. They also make sure there's very little standing or still water where mosquitoes would thrive. Mm-hmm. These measures, combined with ensuring the presence of natural predators and the targeted use of sprayed insecticides, helps ensure that visitors will have to endure as few bug mites as humanly possible while visiting the happiest place on Earth. It allows people to enjoy themselves and focus on the things that really matter, like making sure their children don't get eaten by alligators. (laughs) (laughs) There's another one. You know, it is remarkable that that whole park is in the middle of what was a swamp. Yet to be able to get rid of the mosquito problem when you're surrounded by wetlands, it's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing yeah. thing. So, wow, that's interesting. I didn't know about the sentinel chickens. That's yeah, really that's funny. Yeah, that's a surveillance program. And do you recall when we were there twice with our young children, did you ever No, I don't remember ever, or ever being bit? bit by a mosquito. No, me either. It's pretty amazing. It is. It is. And where did that come from again? Benjamin Christopher in Los Angeles. And if any other ramper out there has a question for one of us. You can go to our website, theofframp.show, and go all the way down to contact us. And contact us. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's best to write the question, the answer, where you got it from, and then who you want to answer that question. Do you want the question to be for Bob? No, of course not. You want the question to be for Marsha, to stump (laughs) Marsha. We appreciate any and all contributions from our audience, wonderful folks listening. Okay, well, speaking of water, recently that uh, big, huge container ship, the Evergreen, was wedged shore to shore in the middle of water, the Suez Canal. It blocked traffic on the uh, 160-year-old waterway. Amazing. Now, photos of that ship next to the big John Deere front-end loaders made the excavation equipment look like matchbox toys. Uh Uh-huh. All right, so that ship had uh, 20,000 containers on board. Now, if somebody decided, let's just go to the nearest airport and fly this stuff out, how many Boeing 747s would it have taken to fly that freight? How many Boeing 747s? Twelve. That's a lot of freight, right? It's more, isn't it? Yes. How many? An unbelievable 2,500 planes. That's how much that barge had on it. That's crazy. Yes, that's no exaggeration. Let me quote from the front page of the Wall Street Journal. The 20,000 containers aboard would fill 2,500 Boeing 747s, an industry executive estimated. That's how much those huge ocean-going barges are transporting. You know, you heard all the other comparisons. Flip it up on its end, it's tall as the Statue of Liberty. It's as long as four football fields. But when you say, yeah, it would take 2,500 Boeing 747s to fly that freight, that's just amazing. It is. Quick question. What countries have won the most World Cups? You know what World Cup is, Mm -hmm. Bob? This is soccer. And the World Cup is like the Lombardi Trophy. For, for soccer. Only for the whole world, yeah. not just the United States. I would say it's probably Italy or England. I don't know, one of those well, two. Get, right. Number one is five World Cups to Brazil. Okay. And then it's tie for second, which four World Cups each to Germany and Italy. 
So those three countries have uh, five and four. I remember World when Cups. Pele came up here from uh, Brazil to play yes, in, in the yes. U.S. years and years ago. So that's really a hot spot for soccer. So the World Cup championship has been won by Brazil more than any other nation. Yeah, followed quickly by Germany and Italy. Okay, all right. Marcia, what's the highest court in the land? Supreme Court. No, it's above the Supreme Court. <laughs> Oh, you mean the godly one? No, there's a basketball court above Uh, the Supreme Court. (laughs) What? Oh, that's funny. It's known as the highest court in the land because Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman on the Supreme Court, insisted that she be able to play there too. Good for her. For 191 years, only men had sat on the Supreme Court, and the closest ladies' room required her to walk down an endless hallway. Uh, So she did what made sense. She just commandeered a nearby men's room instead, said, this is the ladies' room from now on. that's mine. And she took ownership of this other boys room too the basketball court above the supreme court she called it the highest court in the land and she wanted to exercise and after she heard other women in the building did too she reserved the gym and she asked the local ywca to send an aerobics teacher and even ordered custom t-shirts that read women work out at the supreme court and the exercise classes became a daily ritual oh that's wonderful that shows how just one person going into a new environment can change things yes i love it so that's that's where the highest court in the land is it's the basketball court above the supreme court that's very funny (laughs) very funny well you and i in the past not on the show but have talked about the sarah winchester house in san jose california remember the story behind that yes she's an heir to the winchester rifle of fame and she's a little was a little berserk she kept adding on rooms to the house because she thought it was haunted or something like well, that? Well, it's actually, she lost her daughter and her husband to disease. And she went to a, a medium who said, uh, you're, you know, you are cursed. And to break the curse, move west <laughs> and build, keep building. So she bought a house in uh, San Jose. And she started to add on to it for 36 years. Amazing. She added on. So here's the question, Bob. Uh, how many rooms, doors, or windows does this house have? I will say 57 rooms. 160. 160 rooms. 2,000 doors. Holy cow. And 10,000 windows. And this was all done in the 19th century. Yes. Think of all that work that was done on that house. The house had many odd features to confuse evil spirits, like staircases to the ceiling and rooms with a glass floor and doors that opened to a two-story drop. Oh, jeez. Yeah, she wanted to confuse the evil spirits, so... That's uh, that's what she did. That's scary. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised somebody didn't die in that house because they fell when they opened that door and walked into that two-story yeah, two drop. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, King George III is seen as a villain in American memory, right? Because he was the king during the American Revolution. He also created quite a lot of difficulty for English royals till 2013. What was that? What kind of difficulty did he lay on to generations of royals. It only changed in the last decade or so. Jeez, can you narrow it down a bit? It was a a Royal Marriages Act of 1772. You couldn't be divorced? No. It created a system of male preference primogeniture. You know what that is? No. Male sons, even if they were only infants, could displace an elder daughter in the line of succession. And because of that, in the centuries that followed King George III, there were only two queens, uh, Victoria and Elizabeth II. They became rulers only because no males were in line for the throne when their fathers died. Uh-huh. 
If there had been a young male there, if there had been a male baby that was there in the line of succession, it would have taken her place. Ah. It would have been the king, an infant. That all changed in 2013, so it's only by age now. It's not by gender anymore. But it was from the time of King George until 2013. I had no idea it went on that long. And it became the law for commoners, too, this whole primogeniture thing. Throughout society, any English-speaking country, that became the law. It was that, you know, who inherits anything? It's the, it's the oldest male. Yeah. You can have an older daughter there. She won't get anything. Yeah, I know. The oldest male was always the inheritor of the land, of any regular family. They mimicked what happened to the royal family. Thanks to this stupid rule, <laughs> this law that was passed on the insistence of King George III. And in 1777, Georgia adopted a new state constitution. That was the first state to abolish inheritance primogeniture, the state of Georgia. Oh, they were forward-thinking. Yeah, they were the first in America to uh, abolish that rule that the male inherits everything. Okay, what famous pop star overslept and missed his morning meeting appointment at the top of one of the Twin Towers on 9-11-2001? Oh, no kidding. Uh Uh-huh. So he had a meeting at the top stories of that building. Oh, my God. What kind of... uh, what kind of field was this pop star in? Music or film? Music. Music. Was it somebody like Elton John or somebody like that? No. Who is it? Michael Jackson. Really? On the evening of August 10th, Michael Jackson stayed up until 3 a.m. talking with his mom and sister and some other friends. Consequently, he overslept the next morning and he missed his meeting. He told his mom, I'm okay thanks to you and credit her with talking so much he didn't get enough sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So his mom helped him and kept him alive. Isn't that something? Wow. Yeah. Well, here's a mom question, (laughs) and it's about a celebrity. Why did Kevin Bacon's first paying job as an actor disappoint his mom? Oh. uh, His first paying job as an actor disappointed his mom. Why? I don't know. Did he play a pimp or something? No, no. Did he not get much money? Did he no. Get... He, uh, he had his first paying job as an actor when he was 16. He was in a recruitment film for the Army ROTC, and his mom was an anti-war activist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so she was very disappointed. Oh, teenagers, they always find a way to get They you. just rebel. All right, there you go. Time to take a break. We'll be back with more on The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith in just a moment. Okay, we're back with the off-ramp. You got a question there, Marsha? I do. In the marriage ceremony of the ancient Incas of Peru, mm-hmm. the couple was officially wed when they did what? The couple, was this was of any, any level of society? Part of the ceremony, apparently, yes. The couple was officially wed when they like did here, what? Like here, what do they do? We exchange rings. And, yeah. Uh, then they so it's some kind of ritual you. like that. It's a ritual. Like exchanging rings. Okay, I don't know what they did. Okay. They took off their sandals and handed them to each other. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't I walk it? in your feet, yeah. in your shoes, you yeah. walk in my shoes. Yeah, I found it charming, too. That is really sweet. Yeah. Now, that, that has so much obvious symbolism. Uh-huh. It does. Except your feet are smaller than mine, so your shoes wouldn't fit me. Well, t- <laughs> Am I missing something? Yeah, just move on, Bob. <laughs> okay. All right. What TV producer convinced a studio to commit to his comedy by writing a song? Uh, more info. Well, this is a comedy TV show that was in the 60s, and the producer was having trouble getting people to understand his pilot. 
So what he did was he wrote a song to explain it. This is the 60s? Mm-hmm. Gosh, I'm trying to go back. I don't know. Tell me. You know this song. Everybody knows this song. It's an earworm song. Gilligan's Island. Oh, what? <laughs> Sherwood Schwartz. He was a college-educated TV writer. He had degrees in zoology and psychology. So he came up with this concept for a show that would take representative members of American society and strand them <laughs> on an island where they'd have to interact with each other. A and it sounds like, doesn't that sound like Survivor? Remember, that was the first yeah. reality show. I think It was so. that same thing, yeah. only this was a comedy. So anyway, studios were interested, but they began arguing with him and tinkering with the concept. But he got a brainstorm. Why don't I explain the premise in a theme song? So he wrote his own tune and performed it for CBS management. And yes, it was the song that they used at the beginning of the show. A three-hour Yes, that whole thing. And Marianne. <laughs> <laughs> the skipper I, to the millionaire. Did you watch wife. that show? Oh, of course. I, Who didn't watch that well, show, Marsha? I, I, I've only saw it maybe a couple times I my know. whole life. You just, you didn't understand quality television of the 60s. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of fun stuff It is, about it is cute. TV. And speaking of fun. Okay. What is on display in the city of Munster, Germany, that no doubt keeps public notaries on their toes. What is on display? Uh-huh. Statue of a, a notary being impaled on some kind of a cross? Well, <laughs> I don't know. What That's would... good. That's even worse than this. No, they have the mummified hand of a notary public that was chopped off for falsely certifying a document. 400 years ago. Oh, my God. And it was put out as a warning to other notaries. Mummified hand. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> 400 years old. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, 400 years old. Okay, I got some insults from 400 years ago. <laughs> you do? It's some more of those Shakespeare insults oh, that he put okay. in some of his plays. This is kind of funny. I'll beat thee, but I should infect my hands. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, yeah that was... Uh, Timon of Athens, if you ever need to get out of a physical fight, Shakespeare gave you the perfect excuse, wit over brute force. I would beat thee, but I would infect my hands. I like that. And here's another one. I am sick when I do look on thee <laughs> from a Midsummer's Night dream. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Oh. The reason you leave is for a bit of nausea. Yeah. That's getting out of a fight. I am sick when I look on you. <laughs> I must I'll, go now. I'll save that for our next disagreement. I need to go to the restroom. Oh, See you. God. Oh, I, I have a little factoid connect with my last mummified hand story. Uh, and speaking of body deterioration. Oh, jeez. <laughs> did you know our bodies today don't deteriorate as quickly as they used to? Why? Because of all the food preservatives. Exactly. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, no. It oh, just that's it, it slows down decomposition, that's... all the preservatives we eat. <laughs> so, you know, Grandma and Grandpa are rotting a lot slower down there. Oh, dear. <laughs> all right, Bob. The U.S. interstate highway system requires that one mile in every five miles must be what? Must be straight on. Must be... Just a straight line, because the interstate highway system was intended for use for planes during a time of war, where they could land anywhere on the interstate highway system. So it'd be runways all over the country. Well, Mick Sparney Pants does it again. <laughs> That's correct. That's what happens when you have Eisenhower in charge of things. Yes, a General. You're absolutely right. What a brilliant idea. I'd say it is a brilliant idea. Okay, Marsha, you buy some of these products. We know Dr. Scholl really was a doctor. Did you know that? Yes, Do Dr. Scholl yes, really I was did a doctor. Know that. What was his first occupation, though? Oh, uh, he was a 
What are those guys that stuff deer? Uh, a taxidermist? Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't <laughs> no. know why. But... Why would that lead to being a shoe doctor? I just thought it was something. Dr. Scholl. Okay. okay. He was a shoemaker's apprentice. This is how he got the idea oh. to go into medicine uh, because that work convinced him of two things. Feet were abused and nobody cared. Yeah. So he set out to fix that. And by the time he became a doctor at age 22, he had invented and patented his first arch support already. And then by the time he died, he had more than 300 patents for foot treatments and the machines for making foot comfort aids. His customers were so enthusiastic, one widow wrote to him saying she buried her husband with his foot easers so he'd be (laughs) as comfortable in death as he was walking in life. And Dr. Scholl credited his success early to bed, early to rise, work like hell, and advertise. (laughs) That's good. So there was a Dr. Scholl. He was a doctor, but he got his idea for, you know, helping people with their feet by being a shoemaker's apprentice. I've got a a famous writer who had a very eccentric habit, D.H. Lawrence. What was one of his very eccentric habits? He's a very original, controversial writer of the 20th century. Well, I don't know. Can you give me a hint? Well, I'll just tell you. (laughs) (laughs) He liked to remove his clothes and climb mulberry trees. Really? Yeah. He liked to climb mulberry trees naked. I don't know why, (laughs) but he did. Okay, another question. What do chess, hot air balloons, and fishing poles have in common? Chess, hot air balloons, and fishing poles. Three very different things. Yeah, okay, tell me. They were all invented by the Chinese. In fact, the Chinese are credited with many recreational innovations. I think of them as being more with the practical things. Uh But in addition to chess... Hot air balloons and fishing poles, they're also credited with inventing the fishing hook, kites, parachutes, and, of course, fireworks. (laughs) Well, yeah, and a ton of other stuff. Yeah, a lot of other things, too. But I just thought those were three random things to pull together and say, who invented these things? And you thought they were random, so I guess I succeeded. Yeah, (laughs) that you did, lad. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to finish up with some anagrams of famous people. You know what anagrams are? Yeah, I never liked these things. Okay, Okay. take all the letters and rearrange them. Rearrange them, Mm -hmm. like uh, Joe Biden, I need job. (laughs) Is that really? That's an anagram that's got all of his letters of his name? Leonardo DiCaprio, ocean idol or a drip. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And Callista Flockhart, you know who she is? Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. She's married to... Uh, Harrison Ford, right? That's right. And uh, her anagram is, L.A. Chick farts a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Not something to be proud of, but, necessarily. Oh, okay, one more. You'll okay. like this. William Shakespeare. I am a weakish speller. Oh, well, maybe he was. <laughs> Isn't that cute? And the last one, mm-hmm. Walt Disney. Sadly, I went. Wow, but happily he lived. That's right. And oh. you made so many people happy with all those fun he films did. all those years. You got that right. All right. Well, that's. we hope you're going happily into the next hour of your life and hope you've enjoyed the last 30 minutes of yours with us. So we hope you join us again next time when we come back with more great trivia questions. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. And you're listening to The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. You say it. The Off-Ramp. Very good. <laughs> thank you. You say that well. well Is English you. your first language? <laughs>
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.